there's a lot of misdirection in the book and a lot of his internal observations, which obviously are hard to get into film, right, that make him very much a bad guy, too. And that's my overall biggest criticism of the film is that Wolnick's kind of a shit. And and granted, he's not a psychopath, right? But he is a worse person in the book, far Mm. worse and much more her equal than he is in the film. Welcome to episode 175 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss David Fincher's 2014 film, Gone Girl. So, we are delighted to be joined this week by a very special guest, author Rebecca Drake. Her books include Don't Be Afraid, The Next Killing, The Dead Place, Only Ever You, and her latest Just Between Us. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. Full disclosure, uh, Rebecca was one of my instructors at Seton Hill University when I was there for the Writing Popular Fiction writing program, Um, one of my favorites. And I remember you ran like the first workshop I was ever in. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I I think we we met there and and definitely made sure to talk to you every every time after that. You weren't one of my mentors, but um, definitely someone I I touched in every time. Yeah, I was an um, unofficial mentor. I remember that I I remember that you were that was my first semester teaching too. And you were my, uh, my favorite student of that semester, I guess maybe I shouldn't say that but you were like your writing, (laughs) your writing was great. And I remember saying to somebody else, Oh, I've got to find this guy, Luke Elliott, because his (laughs) writing was really great. And and then I cornered you in a hallway when I spotted your name tag or something, and and you looked frightened. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm blushing. You can't see this on the podcast, but <laughs> thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, yeah that's great. Yeah, but I, so you write thrillers and mysteries, and and I thought you're a writer whose work would appeal to readers who like Gillian Flynn. Um, so I thought you'd be a perfect fit for this project. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we write kind of in the same genre, psychological thrillers, you know, domestic dramas, domestic suspense. There are lots of terms that are used, but they're all kind of the same thing. Do you remember if you read this book before you saw the movie or if you saw the movie first? Uh, absolutely. No, I read the book first yeah. and I and love the book, love her writing. I, in fact, read all three of her. I know she has a new book out now, but I honestly haven't read that yet. But I read Gone Girl, Dark Places and Sharp Objects in quick succession and then I sort of needed a break because they're kind of dark. I remember feeling <laughs> like, oh, okay, I've got to go to something completely light here uh, because yeah. they're, you know, pretty relentlessly dark. Though I think in some ways Gone Girl, ironically, is sort of the least dark in some ways, if that makes <laughs> sense, which I know sounds really strange. But I, I write about psychopaths, too. So I don't <laughs> Yeah, we we covered sharp objects on the podcast. And mm-hmm. I remember having just like the weight of sharp objects carry carry through with me for multiple projects beyond that. So we, yes. we covered the book and then and then watched the HBO series, which I thought was also great. Um, yeah. But God, those those they can really stick with you. Yeah, the sharp objects. It's just so incredibly relentlessly sad. You know, you feel so mm-hmm. sad for her. I'm blanking on the main character's name. But um, but Gone Neil, Girl, I think it is. 
Yes, you're right, Camille. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and I think dark places too, there's a tone with that, but in some ways gone girl, because they're so, they're equally loathsome that <laughs> they, you're not like, you're, you're left with that they sort of deserve one another. Not so much, you know, which is my takeaway, at least from the novel. The film is a little different, right? I'm sure we'll get into that. We absolutely will. Yes. Um, we wanted to thank our patrons because this was a, a project that was voted on by our patrons. It's our first poll that was actually voted since our Patreon was revamped. So we're going to try to do this quarterly. Uh, if you want to get it on it, check out our Patreon. Yeah. And thanks for them for doing that. Um, this was a great selection. It's a book I've really enjoyed. So they knocked it out of the park here. Luke, what's your history with the project since we've heard mm. Rebecca's? Yeah, I uh, I saw the movie first for sure. You know, I, in fact, I'd only seen the movie until we got to this coverage. Rewatching it now was a whole different experience um, than than you know seeing it in the theater. I think when it originally came out, you know, you lose some of the shock. Um, we're gonna not spoil it early on. We're we're saving spoilers till later in the episode, and we'll definitely mark that. But um, there's a lot that changes. I think after coming coming off the novel, a lot of stuff I noticed. Um, and it's also fascinating because this is a film where Gillian Flynn wrote the screenplay, adapted her own work. Um, and that is just not typically the case. Yeah. And that's such an interesting, I'm sure in part, that was because the book was such a big bestseller, right? That she got mm -hmm. that opportunity. But I, I think it's really interesting that, and I, I forget, James, ha have you read the novel and seen the film? And which order did you do that in? I saw the film first. Okay, so interesting. So we we'll might have different takes on it, too, because I think there's often a different experience, right? Mm -hmm. And depending mm -hmm. on the order in which you do that. And now I've done, have you guys done it more than once? Because now I've both read the novel and seen the film twice, uh, both of them twice. So it's interesting also mm -hmm. coming from, with some gap in time. I think that makes it interesting too. like have your feelings changed? Are they the same? Like, I think it's very yeah. interesting. My feelings on the movie definitely have changed, uh, but you know this was my first time reading it for the for last week for the episode. So I, I, you know I might revisit it at some point though because I I love the book. Um, I thought it was it was excellent, and I love sharp objects too. Um, so I, I I think I said last week that Gillian Flynn's one of my favorite writers right now. Yeah, uh, I think she's incredible. So yeah, I look forward to it. And Agreed. I want to read dark dark places or spaces, whichever that other one is. Dark I places, <laughs> dark, dark places. places. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're all really they're all really excellent. Yeah, she's a really great writer. Cool. So I enjoyed the film. It's a Fincher film, so it's he has a very specific style that I do definitely want to talk about. I remember as I watched it, feeling like I was missing on certain small details. You know what I mean? It feels like a, it's a film that's really dense in terms of like small hints along the way. Uh, for for someone on a repeat viewing like I'm now up to like I think my fourth viewing because and I'll explain that I watched the film e two days ago and then I immediately watched it again with the commentary track from David Fincher like just mm. back to back because um, uh -huh. I really wanted to know specifically what it was like to have Gillian the writer on board as the as writing the screenplay I think my thoughts my thoughts have definitely changed on the movie and I think I appreciate it more in certain ways and then there are other ways that since I've read the book I'm realizing like certain liberties may have been taken which is always the case with the, with the movie but uh overall i thought it was a really really solid adaptation and and i think gillian's voice is allows for for fincher to really lean into some of the things that he does very well sort of deconstructing a, a hitchcockian style is is what i would consider fincher like this film specifically feels very hitchcockian and part of that has to do with how gillian wove the plot but 
he his use of like framing and staging and all the things that he does his atmosphere that's there a lot of blues a lot mm -hmm. of like uh yeah. are, are his color palette and it, it all creates this uneasiness that right. just carries through in the film yeah there's always that slight aquarium feel is what i think of it the blue greeny you know sepia tones in the background too like there's often like a very yeah he i always feel like he draws in some ways and i don't know this because i really haven't read much about him i just love his work and i you know i've seen i think almost every single thing he's done but like i i so i just appreciate it as a you know film lover but like his um i think that he is very interesting in terms of noir you know that there's often a noirish mm -hmm. feel to a lot of his work and this again because of the material really lends itself to that yeah i picked up on that too and one of those uh hallmarks of noir right is that contrast in light and dark and i kept yeah. thinking about how dark so many of these scenes were especially whenever anybody's inside it's like these houses are not well lit at all um yeah. but what's funny is like it's kind of true to life i realized that so often when i'm at people's houses there's not like a ton of lights on um so you often do kind of you're in semi-darkness and i feel like he really leans into that and and then just the shadows become just even more inky um to where people are often like you can only see slivers of their face um, things like that. And it really makes you focus in on all you can see in the light. Um, I don't know. I, I, I assume he's doing that for effect, right? And, and maybe mm -hmm. referencing that genre of, of filmmaking. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. There is a scene that I'm not going to spoil now, but I, I'm, I feel like from context, you guys can pick up on what I'm talking about. There is the way that he juxtaposes a scene where there's a lot of news. There's a news crew around right outside the house and then juxtaposing that with them going inside some characters going inside and closing the door mm. and what it's like to see like the outside world and what everyone thinks everything looks like and it's and and it's not as much of that blue that blue uh yeah color palette that we're talking about it seems normal like real life and then we move into into the house shut the door and we're just like just burdened by the by the blue and like you're saying the shadows and the um it just feels like a prison basically it feels mm -hmm. especially where that scene takes place he does menace really well you know like i think that things are there's that sense of tension just from how he shoots it right and where we're shooting in the room right is it a low shot is it a high shot right your sense of things closing in on people right there's several scenes i think the interior shots where you do feel nick is being that things are closing in on him right and it's subtle but it's there. So it's just giving you, the viewer, you know, that sense of unease, which I think is really, he does effectively in almost everything, right? House of Cards, certainly Fight Club, but, but um, so many, Seven, you know, that's like yeah. one of- Mindhunter. Yeah, Mindhunter. Yeah, yeah. Mindhunter. Yeah, which was like so incredibly, that was kind of a mm -hmm. slow burn for me. But then uh, once I was into it, then I was super into it. And then I was very disappointed that it ended, right? And I could tell yeah. it was expensive, but it was so well done, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. He he uh, is, I'm sure you've heard, he's notorious for like the amount that he'll shoot and the how, how meticulous he is about his shoots. Um, he, I have some stats here. For this movie, he shot 500 hours of material over the 100-day shoot, an average of five hours per day. And on a film set, five hours per day of actually rolling the camera with everything in place is absurd. That's that's ridiculous. Wow. And uh, the but uh, I was watching with the commentary. There was this scene where um, Neil Patrick Harris's character rolls up in a car, and uh, it was really funny because Fincher. Everyone knows he shoots like 
he shoots like 25 takes of most of most things. Neil Patrick Harris drives this car up and then he has to get out and walk into his house. And on the second take, he nailed it perfectly. So Fincher like wanted to bring that up within the commentary. And he's like, fuck you to anybody who says that I always take 25 takes. Here I am taking two takes. <laughs> so he knows he knows he has a, a, a reputation. <laughs> yeah. He has well, that reputation. And let's, let's talk about casting for a moment, too, in this film, because this is so often you can end up being disappointed mm-hmm. by casting. Right. And I feel like the main characters are so perfectly cast. Right. Almost typecast. I, I, I honestly cannot see Rosamund, what's her last name? Pike. Like, I can't see her honestly in any other role but this, which is, you know, terrible to say. But like, and, but I think Ben Affleck is so perfect for the role for Nick's character. And I think Neil Patrick Harris is great as Desi, right? Like, I think that's yeah. a great, great casting. Great too. cast. Um, yeah. Rosamund, I thought, it, it's almost like a career defining performance for her. So yeah. I think that's what you're referencing. Like, you're always going to yeah. think back about this now. Yeah. And I think if any of the uh, the performances are notable, it's hers. Uh, I think many of them are, but like hers is the one that really stands out with me, especially in the second half. It just it just shifts into another another gear and is is really incredible. Um, I want to shout out Carrie Coons as well, who is the who's plays Go. Oh um, yeah, I think she's incredible in everything I've seen her in, and I think she really provides this core sort of moral core to Nick's story that without you would. You would have nothing to make you feel any sort of positive thoughts towards Nick, right? Like she needs to be there for the audience to like keep him in check and, and call him on his bullshit. Um, so I, I think she plays a really important role in the story, and um, you know her her performance of that character, I think, just nails it. Yeah, I agreed. I think she's amazing in that, and I really liked. We'll get into it, but I have issues with how Nick is depicted in the film versus in the novel. Mm. And I think that she doesn't, and sometimes disappointed by that myself, but like his, by that change, but she doesn't disappoint, right? I think it's like she's consistent from novel to film. And I think she does an amazing job. Yeah. I just wanted to echo what you guys are saying. Rouseman Pike's performance in this movie is unbelievable. I mean, I knew her from like, she was in a Bond film. She was in a couple things here and there. And, uh, to come into this movie and completely like she completely steals the show. She's the she's the performance of this movie. There are other people who who really support her in that pursuit, but she is unbelievable. She's going to be in the new Wheel of Time show, by the way. Um, so mm. so hopefully we'll cover her. Interesting. I did not yeah. know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, she, the range that honestly more than anything, it's the the range of the character where we're seeing her play the cool girl and then we're seeing her play very calculated. We see her in all these different ways. We see her as a genius we, at certain times and um, yeah. each of them feels like a different performance and to like blend it all together and, and create the performance. I, I just think it's it's incredible. Ben Affleck, I, you know, in the in the commentary, it was funny because Fincher was talking about Ben Affleck and how, you know, he's going to he's a director up to this point, like he's started to direct. Um, ben Affleck postponed directing Live by Night in 2016 in order to work on this film with David Fincher, even stating he's the only director I've met who can do everybody else's job better than they could. On set one day, Affleck changed the lens setting on a camera an almost indiscernible amount, betting a crew member that Fincher wouldn't notice. Affleck lost the bet as Fincher brought up, why does the camera look a little dim? <laughs> oh, that's great. Wow. That's great. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so one other piece. Just general observation I want to get out there is uh, it's about Gillian Flynn writing this screenplay and how I I kept thinking about the task she was faced with. Um, She writes this this fantastic novel that is a bestseller, and now she has to condense it into this two and a half hour film. 
um, and and really whittle every scene down into the sort of dramatic punch that is necessary for a film to work. Um, and how I think she did a great job, but it's interesting to note, like you were referencing earlier, there are some things that change and there are some things that are left out. Um, and it, and it can happen organically in the process of changing mediums. Um, because it's, it's the, the artistic mind behind it is the same, although it does change when it gets to the actors and when it goes to the, to the director. Um, it just kind of shows that there's an inherent, difference in medium that even even when it's the same person it's gonna come up right a hundred percent and i think it it's also you know the awareness that things end up on the editing floor right like and so it's what you know i'm sure that and i'm sure that there were other people touching the script too because that's the Mm -hmm. way it works right and so it's like this is it's i'm not saying she wasn't happy with the finished product from everything i read she was right and overall i think it's a solid product but it is it is distinctly different and i think that's interesting and frequently you know you see that with like the shining like mm-hmm. the book versus the film you know there are many yep. classic examples of, <laughs> yes right right yeah. which is such a great you know example of very different things but both very Absolutely. successful right like very take and this one it's it is interesting, right? Because it is, it is, but it, and I think it's a little more controversial with this because of the the feminist angle that is in the novel and that some people think was left out uh, of the film, right? Including mm. myself to a degree. I felt like some okay. of that I, got cut. Yeah. We'll have to get into that more once yes. we get into spoilers. Yeah. Um, I, we got to get into the filmmaker more though, right, James? Yes. One more thing I want to talk about just in terms of general thoughts right before the filmmaker is some other people who are important. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Oh, uh, was Reznor on this score. one? Oh, yes. Great score. I had a, yeah. there's a particular yeah. scene where I, I thought the score was just absolutely incredible, which will... I can't talk about yet. Yeah. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Uh, so I just wanted to say uh, they that duo have worked with Fincher repeatedly on. I think they started in uh, on the Social Network in 2010, and then they did The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo in 2011, uh, Gone Girl in 2014, and Mank recently, 2020. Mm-hmm. Have you guys have you seen that movie? By the I way, I have not seen Mank. No. That's I've been saving that because we've been watching films together as a family. To, like because we have a filmmaker in the house because of the pandemic, she was forced to return home. So we will we watch every everything curated by her and like so we've That's been awesome. waiting because she didn't have to which is great because you get all i have so much more knowledge because of it and so i've been waiting but i'm dying to see it yeah and mm. it just got big nominations is it amazing it did yeah i just yeah. watched it it's incredible if you like film history if you like citizen kane specifically yeah it's it's like i mean it's it's almost like uh what tarantino did with once upon a time in hollywood where you're like creating your own narrative of like what actually was going on in historical events but it's it, you know it's i think it's less of a tarantino does like almost a parody of of th- things in that way and i think this is almost like i don't want to spoil anything but basically there's a screenplay writer and there's orson wells and supposedly some some combination of the two created one of the best movies of all time citizen kane and this this movie sort of um looks over at Mank, uh, Mankiewicz, who was the screenplay writer and sort of shows his his side of the story. Um, And it's Fincher and it's incredible. It's in black and white and Gary Oldman's (laughs) amazing. It's it's awesome. So sorry for going on a tangent with that. Uh, Let's talk about Fincher and this movie. So David Fincher is an American film director known for his psychological thrillers. His films have received 30 nominations at the Academy Awards, including three of him as best director. Born in Denver, Colorado, Fincher Fincher developed a passion for filmmaking at an early age. 
He first gained recognition from directing numerous music videos, most notably Madonna's Express Yourself in 1989 and Vogue in 1990, both of which won him the MTV Video Music Award for Best Direction. He made his feature film debut with Alien 3 in 1992, mm -hmm. which garnered mixed reviews. And just as a side note, he like wanted his name removed from that movie. Um, there is there's a, a bunch of crazy stuff if you want to look into that. It's it's very interesting because it's like a young filmmaker who clearly has great vision, who is being controlled by a studio and he hates that movie and doesn't want to be associated with it. Mm -hmm. uh, followed by the thriller Seven in 1995, which was great better guy. received. Fincher found lukewarm success with The Game in 1997 and Fight Club in 1999, with the latter eventually becoming a cult classic. In 2002, he returned to prominence with the thriller Panic Room, starring Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. Fincher also directed the critically acclaimed Zodiac in 2007, The Social Network in 2010, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011, and Mank in 2020. For The Social Network, he won the Golden Globe for Best Director and BAFTA Award for Best Direction. His biggest commercial successes are The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, 2008, and Gone Girl, 2014, both of which grossed more than $300 million worldwide, with wow. the former earning 13 nominations at the Academy Awards and 11 at the British Academy Film Awards. He also served as an executive producer and director for the Netflix series House of Cards from mm -hmm. 2013 to 2018 and Mindhunter from 2017 to 2019 winning the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Direction for a Drama Series for the pilot episode of House of Cards. Wow, what a what a list of stellar work. Um, and I heard several others in there that we might be able to cover at some point, so that's, that's exciting for me. Yeah, what's so interesting is how varied they are too, right? Like yeah. I've, I've seen every single one of those, and they're such such different films, right? And while he, while there are some hallmark stylistic similarities, right? Some things that you then come to associate with, oh, of course, this is Fincher, right? Like when even when you don't know it and then you watch it and then you see that his name is attached to it, you're like, of course, I should have realized that right away. But at the same time, like the curious case of Benjamin Button is so incredibly different from Seven. Yeah. And I don't mean just <laughs> in, obviously the plot is completely yeah. different, right? And different genre of film, but it's also different you know in in space in time in in the time he takes with the characters and really uh pushing your emotions in very different ways with uh, those films right and that, i remember seeing seven and like being just blown away by that film just completely blown away like that mm -hmm. was th though that is one back to something luke said earlier that is one where I'm like, you know, my husband and I saw that film together and we're like, does no one turn on the lights when they enter a building? <laughs> do, the, do detectives really not just hit the light switch? You know, there were several moments in that where you're like, now come on. Right. It depends how moody they're feeling. It yeah, exactly. exactly. Seven, seven is so dark, it feels like it doesn't take place in our world a little bit. Like mm -hmm. it almost feels yeah. like an alternate, like all constantly raining reality. <laughs> but anyway, that's just that movie. <laughs> it's so cool that he worked with the, the psycho in Seven is yeah. then comes back as Frank Underwood and, you know, now disgraced Kevin Spacey, yeah. you know, comes yeah. back as Frank Underwood in House of Cards, oh, but it's oh, so how great. It goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wanted to point people to a video that I absolutely love. Every Frame a Painting is a is a YouTube channel that I've I've talked about a few times on uh, on the podcast here. And there's one that he has about David Fincher that I just would love to point people to because he talks about the uh, it's called and the other way is wrong, David Fincher. And um Basically, it goes on to talk about how Fincher Fincher revels in dialogue and and um, like getting to be creative within 
what ultimately is what film is. There is all the cinematic things going on, but ultimately a lot of the time it ends up being two people talking to each other with a camera. Mm -hmm. And it can be pretty boring if you're just cutting from over the shoulder shot to over the shoulder shot back and forth. And it just talks about like his process and the things that he does to to make these these things more interesting to look at, uh, more engaging as films, and also tells you a story with, as I talked about before, like staging and framing. And mm. he uses Seven as an example since we're talking about it. And the way that he stages Morgan Freeman and, and um, Brad Pitt's characters throughout the movie, as the relationship is getting getting tighter, they typically in shots are closer to each other. There's even a shot where like Brad Pitt is has fallen asleep on Morgan Freeman at one point mm -hmm. on his shoulder. And then it all culminates in that super famous scene at the end of mm -hmm. seven where you're getting these shots that have like uh, Brad Pitt in the foreground, Morgan Freeman in the background, and then just like the anguish of what goes on in that final scene. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. That, that's yeah. yeah, I won't do that because you guys haven't covered that then. That's a fun one, like interesting. But I guess is that based on a novel? I don't actually I don't know. think it I'm is, sure. but just yeah. in case someone hasn't seen it. <laughs> yeah, well won't won't give a spoiler, but yeah, that's really interesting. I never read that, but the minute you say it, I recognize that too, because that scene, that very big scene, is so um emotional again, mm -hmm. like that it's not just there's a lot of shock value, but it's not the shock value you remember as much you do, but it's also the emotion, what Morgan Freeman is saying to Brad Pitt's character, mm -hmm. like and what they're saying and how they're almost like father son in that moment is very interesting. Exactly. That's I love the idea of a filmmaker telling us like you could mute the, you mute the film and tell that like at the beginning, they're not, you know, they're growing closer throughout the movie. And it and it's ultimately telling a story just through visuals, which mm -hmm. is so important to this medium, obviously. Yeah. And that leans into one of the strengths, right, just for dramatic presentation of stories um, and, and leaning into the power of watching a scene play out and be performed. Um, and he maximizes that in this movie. Um, I think some of the most iconic scenes and, and most memorable scenes are just characters talking to each other and the drama that, that unfolds um, and the way he's able to capture that and really drive it home with all the, you know, many tools and his tool tool belt um yeah i can definitely see that i'll check out that video i'll put it in the show notes as well so uh look down there for it yeah and i also recommend everything else on that channel so <laughs> check any of that stuff out too okay so we're going to jump into summary now i have the briefest of summaries we did cover this last week we, we went in depth on the on the summary with the book episode so i would recommend that you listen to that and then I will be giving very brief uh three part we have like a three-part structure that we're going to talk about the first part Nick is assumed guilty and we're getting flashbacks from the diary of Amy and their and their life and their relationship together as it's building and his beloved wife Amy has gone missing. Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. Uh, we do want to put out a disclaimer. We are moving into full spoiler territory. We may reference things from later in the movie. So if you haven't seen it, if you haven't read it, check out now. Um, I, I think it's clear that we do recommend it. <laughs> um, and then you can always come listen to this later. Um, but yeah, we uh, Part one of this movie, what did you think, Rebecca? So this is where, for me, it's the weakest in some ways. Like, I think that the one big difference between the film and the book, and which I think is a weakness, is the house itself, right? So we're, we're set up in the novel and in the movie, though they touch on it pretty quickly, that the reason that they're back in Missouri is that Nick and Amy have both lost their jobs, right? And then on top of it, she, who's been kind of a, had this trust fund set up by her her author parents, right, has, um, they've had to borrow against it, right? And this is, that's the backdrop of this 
of the book and it's mentioned and it's sort of referenced even in the opening sequences in the film when we see these falling apart towns, right? And this town they've come back to, this North Carthage, Missouri, is, which I don't even know if that's fictional or not, but she does a good job of depicting, you know, various towns like this that most of us know Midwestern towns, right? And and Fincher does this great thing of these shots of kind of, you know, closed storefronts, poverty, things like that. And in the book, we're told that what they they move into, they rent with her money, a McMansion, basically, mm-hmm. the suburban hellhole in a newer development in which people have, you know, foreclosed on their homes and some homes have never even been moved into, right? Because the, the bust happened, right? The recession. And basically the only reason they're able to rent is pretty, so it's described as large, but sterile, right? And the house that's depicted is not these things, right? That is my first like major criticism. And I think it's a, it's a, I don't know why he did it. I'm imagining, I, I even found myself wondering, well, is he, you know, come from a European perspective, but looks like no, David Fincher's American, or is this a Californian perspective of what this is? Because the house is one, it is nicer than the house is depicted in the book, right? And it has, um, maybe he just liked it because again, you're using a medium in which if we showed it as they depict in the book, where they've moved in their couch, where they really don't have everything in this house, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't, and they, they describe the couch looking weird in the house, right? It doesn't fit. And when she walks through the door in the novel, Amy makes a comment that basically, you know, should I just sell my soul now or give away my soul now, right? That this place is mm-hmm. completely soulless and alien to her, this native New Yorker. But the house itself has some character, right? Which it is not really supposed to in the book. And it's also in a development that is clearly established, right? This is an upper class neighborhood. This isn't a new development. There are mature trees, there are mature plantings, there's gardening all around the house, right? And in the book, right, remember famously the father of the the father of the triplets, Noel Hawthorne's, you know, uh, a hapless husband has, you know, they're taking turns mowing the overgrown grasses on these other properties because of raccoons. You know, this is really falling apart place and nowhere in the film, it is not falling apart, right? It's suburban, but it's a pretty upscale suburbia, right? The average suburban McMansion does not have that beam ceiling, does not have the amount of stuff they have in their house. And the reason I really think it matters negatively is that from the opening sequence, and through that sequence, the opening sequence where we get the famous opening lines from the book, which remain pretty much the same, right? Which is a great opening sequence, right? And I'll go back to that in a second if I can, right? But then we see Ben Affleck with this house, right? And Ben Affleck here. We're already kind of setting up something that, boy, if you're not satisfied here, Amy, right? Like what's wrong with you, right? And like how, you know, that contrast between their life in New York and Missouri isn't really made, right? We see the poverty of the outside town. And ironically too, it's like, the contrast is so sharp that you really notice when you're in Go's house, for instance, which is ramshackle and the dad's house, which is a dump, right? Like this is, it really stands in sharp contrast, right? And the bar itself, which isn't, you know, is the bar, right? Like isn't very, so I I had a big issue with that the first time I saw it and the second time, right? I remember being really like, wait a second. I didn't, you know, the first time I saw it, I was really stunned. I was like, what, what? They didn't live like this, did they? And having to go back to the book and saying like, oh, this is different. And I also think if I can even go back further, that very opening shot, where he says those great lines about whenever I think of my wife, I think of her head, right? That's is so creepy in the novel, right? And and Fincher's choice to un, kind of undercuts the creepiness and 
broadcasts, and are we in the part where we can talk spoilers? Broadcasts, yeah, broadcasts that we have a psycho, right? Because she turns her head. Instead of just focusing on the back of her head, Fincher chooses to show us her turning to the camera and looking. And while I love that framing device, beginning and end, right? Like there's, it's, it, she looks so creepy from the beginning, right? That we're signaling, (laughs) this is a creepy, dissatisfied crazy person, right? Instead of in the novel, when you read the novel, you very much believe for part of the novel that he could have killed her, right? Like there's a lot Mm -hmm. of misdirection in the book and a lot of his internal observations, which obviously are hard to get into film, right? That make him very much a bad guy too. And that's my overall biggest criticism of the film is that Walnick's kind of a shit and, and granted he's not a psychopath, right? But he is a worse person in the book far Mm -hmm. worse and much more her equal than he is in the film. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think you're picking up on a lot of subtle stuff there that um, is often the stuff like the, the, the background, the texture that that can get lost when you adapt something Um, you're right on. And and I I am curious as to why he might've done that. So I'm finding myself like coming up with possible reasons. I do think he likes the contrast. Um, he, He really favored, like he wanted the idea of this, incredibly nice mansion compared to Go's house. He wanted to show the two different lives, the lives she lives in versus the life of everyone else. And exactly like, how could she not be happy in this house? How could she not? And um, it does change the way we feel about each of these characters a little bit. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they get, there's so much tied into that time frame of the crash. Um, and we talked about in our last episode, how I felt like this is a book that is about a very specific time in, in American life. And, um, a lot of economic anxiety surrounding that and like people losing their jobs and, and overall destitution. And like some of that just doesn't translate as well in this version. Um, and like you said, because of that, I think you, you really hone in more on like their relationship as being the reasons of dissatisfaction. And you don't think about necessarily her being such a fish out of water and just hating it here. It's told to us, but it's not as effectively shown. Uh, so I'll, I do agree. And I wonder if it was like, was there a decision? There was a, like a half step measure maybe that was made to be like, are we, should we update it for 2014? Because I'm not sure if the, if the year is stated in the movie. I can't remember. But I wonder if it was like, well, let's update it for 2014, but then still keep the aspects of like a broken, like a, like an empty mall and something mm-hmm. like that. Like the artifacts are still remaining from like the original. Um, and it, yeah, I, I agree. I, I guess I didn't really think of it in um, in those terms, but it does make sense to because I, I almost felt like Fincher was saying, like, look at how how bleak and soulless just suburban life can feel to an extent. And then but I do like what you're saying, because because in the book, it is very, very clear that like the soul, you might feel soulless in a in just suburban life in general or trapped in suburban life. But like to 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 give Amy more motivation would be to have a completely stripped bare walls and and like a couch in the center and like there's not a lot going on within the house because there is something I don't want to it's not elegant it's not an elegant house but it is sort of upper way way upper middle class like borderline yeah. rich and mm-hmm. and like there's enough things in there to where it's been decorated and decisions were made and it, it feels like that's that was a distinct decision Gillian made in the in the book to be like they moved in and then Nick is too lazy to do anything that's sort of where the gap is is forming their relationship is falling apart for many different reasons but one of them being they moved into a house and don't even actually live there it's just like a vessel almost that they're that they're 
I don't know, sailing through the ocean on or something. It's not, it, there's nothing there for them personality wise. Yeah. And I wonder if like, you're right. Like I, I wonder if one is that it wouldn't look very interesting, right. In the yeah. shots, if you were in this empty home that didn't have as much decoration. Right. And I think that beam ceiling, which I always think of, because to me, that's the hallmark of knowing that this isn't a McMansion, right. That the kitchen too, but especially like the woodwork, like this is a more expensive home, right? Plus the neighborhood, mm -hmm. plus the plus the brick, even the brick construction, right? Brick and yeah. siding as opposed to just siding, right? Like siding is cheaper. Like you're not, and there are many windows on the house, right? Like what, maybe it's just because I, where I live, there are a lot of these McMansion developments, and I've been through them, right? And there isn't this gap between the homes, right? You're pretty close to your neighbor. You get whatever your zoning rules are about your lawns, but you don't have like this and but I wonder again it won't look as beautiful right mm -hmm. it's just and maybe like you're saying Luke that he chose to you know it's where you put your focus right but in and the decision to put that focus because we want to intensify I think that's really interesting your point that we really want it to be about the relationship right but what gets lost and that's what I think is interesting especially when you're translating a book to film right and can the meaning can that decision which might be made for which I think it was right for these particular reasons actually lose something kind of critical to the book. And then my vote is it does lose something a bit critical because it loses part of her motivation, right. Mm -hmm. For doing this, like part of it that, you know, how shitty this really is for her. Right. Even though I might understand his reasons for doing it. Right? Yeah. There are, there are other things we can talk about too. And just, I don't know if you guys want to talk about something else, but I wanted to talk about Nick himself, right. Mm -hmm. In the novel, versus the book, because we're talking about the first part, right? And like, I think that his, that is, again, the big difference. And again, understanding that you have to make these choices in film, right? You're trying to, you have to signal things in a different way. And I think I'll get to some of them later. But I think there's some very, I think there's some improvements in what Fincher did, too, right? Like that it's, for instance, especially when we get to the second part, especially the scene with the, you know, when she's, camping out, right? Somewhere the people, I think that's a big improvement over the book. But I think that Nick, it's it's interesting because what's lost too, which I, I almost wonder ended up on the editing floor, right? Like it's so hard as we both know, just to write a book much less to have all these people and pull together this film, right? That, that Nick several times were told that he's his he's a liar right he says he likes mm -hmm. to lie by omission his own sister mentions it that's in the novel that gets lost right he's um afraid the biggest part is and we can talk about that separately too it's just a big discussion about parenting and its influence right on these characters but he is afraid uh, very much of being his father right and in fact by returning to missouri right his misogynistic violent father that his mother was under the thumb of this man and only blossomed once she left him right and he references that you know women are bitches right like this everybody is a bitch who crosses him right and he's frequently in the book nick is like this himself right that's almost com almost completely gone from the film right like he is not he's afraid of his own violent urges that's completely gone right and i yeah. and i feel like that's a loss and too bad right and that maybe the decision was made because Again, sometimes contrast, a very sharp contrast works better in film. Do you know what I mean? You got to get yeah. maybe like you said, James, about the opening shot too, right? That we want, maybe it was to foreshadow something, right? Like the decision to do that. But I personally think it's a loss. Like I think it would have been, you could have done it and I wish he had done that more, right? Like where you yeah. showed him. 
it feels like a lot yeah a lot of the times with these adaptations that we see i think things have to for the sake of keeping things moving along some of the stuff has to be implied but i do agree in terms of setting nick up to be a worse individual that is lost in the movie but um i, I part of me thinks that that it, it, it it's it's some of the stuff has to be implied um and if you want to dig i think it's there but the fact that it's not there for the person who sits down for the first time to see um makes you you know hate nick less early yeah. on which which that's part of the huge device of the story too is like hate nick early on so that you can be you know in in like scared for him late in the story yes and and i think that's the big thing too right we are supposed to believe that he's this and and while he comes across as okay he's not a great guy right but that's almost tossed off right for instance there's an early scene in which we're in a backstory scene right in which um, they're in sync that this is one of the big differences between the novel and the film when they're in the novel he always gets their anniversary wrong right he's never mm. gotten it correct right and the game she's played because he's really not that tuned into her right he's because he's kind of a guy right like he doesn't tune in that much <laughs> and she has these expectations but he and that's something we could talk a lot about people's expectations which is a big part of the book yeah. but in the film there's an early scene of that they were once in sync right mm -hmm. that he's buys the same sheet she does right which never happens in the novel mm -hmm. and i think that it's and my issue with that isn't so much oh you make changes right i think you always make the change but what does that say about what the author was overall saying right what can that change the theme of this novel too right does mm -hmm. that change and i think again because more people see films than read the books and because it's like, what are we putting out in the world? I do think those messages are important too, right? That's, and you, you can argue, and perhaps we should, about like, can, you know, so I was talking about this book once with another author, right? A male author, and he was saying, and he does not write in this genre. And he, and I was saying that one of the things I really loved about the novel that a lot of women really related to is some of the feminist message that, that we can talk about it, like the cool girl, right? The concept of the mm -hmm. cool girl and what she is funny. I remember when I read it, like laughing, but recognizing it too, that a lot of women recognize that, right? And mm -hmm. and that um, phenomenon, right? And in in the film, and he was saying that that message, like he was saying that the book, that because of what happens later, it completely undercuts because of who she really is. It undercuts any of that. And I was like, yeah, I guess it sort of does, but in the book it still kind of worked, right? But then in the film, I think you lose a lot of that, right? I don't think you really... I'm not sure you can really pay attention to it. And maybe that's what Fincher ultimately decided, right? Again, like the difference in The Shining or something between the novel and the film, right? That there are certain choices you have to make and those choices necessarily mean that you're going to let go of some other piece. It's just the piece that I thought made the book richer and I wish it yeah. had been there more. I actually, yeah, I, I really like what you said about that because making Nick more likable realistically is is he needs to be very unlikable in order to have Amy's character seem justified um along the way which i do feel like in the book and movie i and i don't know maybe everyone doesn't feel this way but i do feel like i don't like nick in either version but like you said in the book it's so drastic like we hate him so much 
that we're on. I, I like I think I said in our book episode, I was on Amy's side for much, much longer than I was willing to admit, like I, up until, you know, doing some drastic things. And then I was like, OK, that seems a little far till she but, killed uh, a dude, and, and I, <laughs> as, yeah. as as Nick says, <laughs> yeah. because he's more likable. We maybe we flip sides a little earlier, which is and, and we lose some of the feminist yeah. messaging, like you're saying, I, in terms of like the, the cool girl stuff and everything. Yeah. It maybe has more of an impact when when he is also oh, he's a representation of a shitty guy mm-hmm. as well. So I, I suspect that Fincher or somebody along the way um, or some group, uh, you know, the, the creative minds came together and said, we need to give the audience somebody to root for at different points in the film. And in the first half of the film, I feel like you're you're rooting for uh, Amy uh, because you're getting these diary accounts of their like idyllic mer- uh, you know, uh, romance and how, you know, just movie like, you know, with the, 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 sh- the sugar dusting and everything is just so is so like romantic and fairy tale almost. And then you're seeing Nick be terrible and talk so much like he, he's saying so many things about his wife that don't line up with the things we're seeing. So I, I do think we hate him early on and we like Amy. And then when the switch happens, I felt like they they wanted us to be able to immediately move back to liking Nick instead. Um, whereas in the book, I was a little bit more unmoored. I was like, I don't have like anybody now. Everybody's terrible. Um, and I kind of root for both. And I also root against both at the same time. And I'm I was comfortable in that position. I thought that was really interesting. But I wonder if they thought like a movie watcher is going to get frustrated and feel like they didn't want to stop watching the movie if they have no one to root for yeah and i wonder if right like that ambiguity doesn't necessarily work for a larger percentage a bigger audience share right i mean i think it's interesting what james pointed out that this is one of his most successful films Right. right and and it works you can remove that ambiguity and it still works as a damn good thriller right and i'm not Mm -hmm. saying that fincher doesn't do that but i also think it's I think it's one of those things too. Have you ever had this experience where like you yourself and you can edit yourself this way and then realize you don't even realize, like I remember once being asked to read at a salon and they, you know, had this specific word count, right? Like, and I was reading from a work in progress. And so I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I'm in a hurry, you know, and I'm not saying clearly Fincher is not in a hurry when he does this, but still what ends up on the cutting room floor, right? Like that you, Mm -hmm. you know, you, I put in this time and I thought, okay, I've got the scene. I cut where I wanted to leave them hanging. Right. But it wasn't until I got up to read that I realized I'd cut all life from the press because I'd had to go through (laughs) to make their very specific word count. And it's Mm -hmm. like the worst possible moment to realize that you're like, oh, shit, you know, like, there's nothing <laughs> great here anymore. I've cut yeah. all life from this, right? All wow. description, everything else. And it just sounds so bad, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying Fincher did that. But I do think there's a degree, right? Like, whenever you cut something, right, something yeah. goes, right? Like, and you well, and these decisions, Gillian and had to do it as well, you know, as a screenwriter, yeah. and, and both of them, they are working on constraints. Like, sure, he goes two and a half hours, but he doesn't go three and a half. He doesn't go four, right? You know, which, right. uh, I listened to audiobook for a lot of the, the the reading, and it was like nineteen hours. You know, so it's it's a long yeah. story, and so no matter what, you're condensing, and you got to make decisions about what's got to go, what's got to be simplified. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I, I don't want to. I, I feel like there's a lot of other stuff to talk about, so we should probably move on from yeah. this. But yeah, I think we can retouch on the Nick situation because I think it is very interesting yeah. throughout. Just as authors, I wanted to ask, like, what what do you think it meant to Gillian to have another crack at the story? Like, do you think that especially in the fact that she had to cut it down, do you think that it was something where she was updating or do you think she wanted to stick very like 
very harshly to her original plan? Or do you think that like along the way, there are changes that she made um, to update or, or I don't know, something maybe that she felt she could make better? I don't know, right? I mean, I think it, it hues pretty closely to it. It's just that what what can be included, right? Mm -hmm. There are only a few things where I'm like, the speech is a little different or this is different, but I think it hues, so it says to me that she wanted to get the meat, right? And that's mm -hmm. that's what is interesting, right? It can hue pretty closely and still be kind of a different product, right? And yeah. so I think that's interesting. I, I imagine, you know, I heard Lee Child once say that, er, he found script writing, you know, because he's written some of them for, I guess, his Jack Reacher films adaptations that he's found them easier than a novel because they're much shorter, right? And he could knock it out. But I would think, too, that anyone as meticulous as she is at writing, I'm not saying Lee Child isn't, he's a great writer, right? But I'm just saying that I wonder that her books are very richly layered and detailed. I would imagine there might be some frustration, right? Yeah. That you've got to like, yeah. you've got to limit yourself. Yeah, it feels like if you open the Pandora's box and start changing things, something can start to unravel and you can start to lose the threads yeah. or something like that. So I just wonder, like, if, if given the opportunity, would you venture in a new direction in some in some sense? Or do you think you would try to really stick to your to your original plan? There was a scene in particular where I was thinking of something kind of like this. Um, it was one of the early parties where Nick is being like gallant and um, very romantic. It's, I think it's when they first meet. Um, and I was thinking about how in the book, this is all given us to us through the diary. And it's not really a scene as it is much of a summary, her remembering it. Like it's, it's written in a way that's really engaging, but it's not like a dramatic scene. And here I was like, Gillian Flynn got to write this as a scene. And I thought mm -hmm. there was some subtle changes there, um, some different beats that weren't in the book that I thought worked really well. And I was like imagining her having fun going like, oh, I, I wrote this in a different way before. Now I get to go and revisit it, reimagine it um, and really try and show it as a dramatic scene. So in that sense, like I felt like that would probably be fun to do. Um, but I, I absolutely think there are other times where she's probably feeling the pain of, oh, my God, I can't get all the things in that I want to get in. So it's I'm sure it's a mixed bag. Yeah. And it's and I, I agree. I wonder if it might really I mean, I don't know, because I haven't read anything about what she found that process to be. And and ultimately, they were both successful, right? So I bet yeah. no regrets, right? But I <laughs> yeah. think that it's like, because I'm sure, you know, again, the film doing so well helps sell more. Her book yeah. was already a big bestseller, but doesn't hurt it, right? It's part, of the, so, it's part of the job, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, ultimately, she yeah. signed on to do it. So I'm sure she was like, this is what I have to do. Um, so I'm going to live with it, you know, one way or another. It's better than someone else doing it to your work. <laughs> yeah, and I think you can probably speak to this too, Luke, as an author. But I think as an author, I'm very aware. Like, I've had, I have been very close to being optioned, but haven't had anything made yet. But I think you're really aware that, this is your creative process is the novel, right? And mm -hmm. when you hand it over to be made into a film or a show, right? That's someone else's creative process. And all you really hope is like, yeah, it'd be great to write the script, you know, responsibility, but great. But you really just hope they don't totally screw it up, right? You And I'm sure that having David Fincher on board to do your film, right? That would be like, oh, amazing, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's like, you're so fortunate, right? So I don't, I, yeah, I think it's, I, I think you recognize, I mean, that's the thing too, when your novel is out in the world, when something's out in the world, it's like, this is the part that's art, right? It's like, of course you care what people think about it, right? Or you would just be writing for yourself in an attic somewhere. But I think that I'm also very aware, I'm always very interested in people's very different reactions to something I've written, right? Like, because yeah. I think that that's 
that's always very interesting. It's like, oh, this is their take on this product. And I find that really interesting. And I'm not threatened by it. You know, I never feel this need to like correct someone's, well, you got that wrong, right? Like it's, it's, I think that's more interesting. It's like, because once it's out there, it's like a painting, right? Once it's on the wall, that's then the experience they're having, every person's experience is their experience. And so I think that, you know, she's a, talented experienced writer right i'm sure that she and she'd written for magazines or entertainment tonight yep. or somebody weekly mm -hmm. or something like before so i'm sure that she you know you used to being edited you're used to people having to make decisions and so yeah i don't know i don't know what uh, having not had the experience i don't know we should be so lucky that we, yeah. we have this experience someday right yeah <laughs> okay so i'm going to move on to part two amy is found to be alive we find that as the audience that amy is alive and mm -hmm. she's on the run uh, Nick is trying to prove his innocence. He's been taken in by the police. They're really starting to suspect him. And basically, he is the number one suspect. Yeah. So I think this is where the movie really shifts gears and tries to say, surprise, she's the villain. Um, and now we kind of like Nick and we're kind of rooting for him to get the upper hand or at least like prove that he's not guilty. Um, and I think that this is where the, the movie feels like it really is trying to to shift our perceptions, like completely flip them. Um, and I, I know that when I saw this in the theater, I was completely, I, I did not see this coming. It, it got me for sure. I thought Nick was guilty. I thought that's where we were going. Um, I was, you know, I was led there by the film and, and I, that's where I was. Um, I didn't, you know, even with these little things we're talking about, they didn't tip their hand to me. I didn't, I did not think that she had, you know, made herself disappear and was still alive. And like, I thought someone killed her. So uh, I thought it was a brilliant turn and it works well for the film as someone who had not read the book, um, you know, despite what else might be lost, I guess. <laughs> and I agree. I think that, you know, when I read the novel first too, it was the same way, right? It's when you get to that big twist, it's like, holy shit, right? Yeah. Like it's an, mm -hmm. it's amazing, great twist, right? And as I, as we're talking about it, I'm sort of changing my feeling about parts of the film, too, that I wonder if part of the reason for this shift, right, to make Nick, you know, as you said, someone to root for is potentially also because when you get to the end of this novel, you're pretty much like, God, I can't stand either of these people, right? <laughs> yeah. whereas, yeah. whereas in the film, you are still sort of like, Jesus, you know, he's stuck with her, right? Like, what is this? And it gives a much more weighted. So, you know, Fincher's kind of a genius. So maybe in that sense, maybe there was an... an an understanding that people, because you definitely have, and I remember reading criticisms of the novel in, in which people were basically, these two people are so awful, right? They kind of, mm -hmm. who wants to spend any more time in their company, right? And I, I never like the term likable. I like relatable because I think, you know, we don't like Tony Soprano, right? But he's relatable, right? And we give something, if we can tap into understanding why they do things. And I think she still makes... A, he still makes Amy, Gillian Flynn definitely makes her relatable, right? And like makes her choices relatable. I think that some of that is lost by needing to have a sharper contrast between Nick and Amy, some of her motivation, and also by doing certain things early on that show Nick to be much more generous than he is ever depicted to be in the novel, right? Like he is, he's a shit, right? But there's an early scene too. There's a sex scene in which he's going down on Amy, right? Mm -hmm. In the film, and which that's depicted, and I think it's always interesting how sex scenes are used, right? Like, because it's mm -hmm. like, again, that's often code for something, right? Like, it's a shorthand for us to get to understanding their relationship, right? And that's code for I'm a really generous guy, right? That's always, which always mm -hmm. makes me laugh in film, because it's like men making these films. But like, you know, that's code for look at me, I'm a good guy, right? Just mm -hmm. like buying the sheets for the anniversary run, really. Oh, Gillian Flynn probably wrote it into the screenplay. 
Yeah, she, and that's the intro. Well, did she or maybe wanted to show it? And yeah, it is I'd have interesting to see that she wrote again, that, though, yeah. right? Because in the book, it's full of blowjobs, right? Like, there's not like yeah. <laughs> it's full of like she's mentioning that constantly. He talks about it, but that's constant, constant, constant coming back to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like in mm-hmm. sex, it's constantly, you know, the other women doing this and what the cool girl is and everything else. And so I think that's an interesting contrast. But like, I. I think that Amy, that sequence, he does so brilliantly, you know, where we see, because there's a lot of material covered that he has to get, we have to get pretty quickly to, for the film to stay within a reasonable amount of time, right? To get pretty quickly to her next step there. And that, you know, I watched it again, like just that sequence too. And I was struck by the, the brilliance of having the voiceover with her, you know, like, which is often not liked in film. My daughter mm-hmm. tells me this, the filmmaker, I'm not yeah. as familiar with why I always enjoy it, but apparently that's frowned on sometimes. And I think it's done very effectively. Maybe James can speak to that, but like, I think it's really effective how there she's cutting her hair, dyeing her hair and giving that whole speech. And it loses some of the impact of the cool girl speech, but it's a really effective way to move us forward in the story, you know, in getting, getting us to her next part of her crazy. And it is, she is, I mean, it is so certifiable, right? It's a great, yeah. you know, a great scene. In terms of, of having narration or having voiceover, um, I agree. Like, I, I think that, that the problem becomes people use it as a crutch a lot of the time. And, you know, everyone's taught to show, not tell, even in writing and everything. Like, you don't need to, there doesn't need to be exposition most of the time if you're effectively setting everything up. So if there's a, if that scene didn't have uh, Amy, like, speaking over it, uh, maybe it would have been harder for people to follow along with, but there might be something more artistic to that. Um, so I tend to agree, though, in like in, in a more it, you see it a lot in indie films, honestly, like in an indie film, you're left you're left to your own devices and you are sort of absorbing the story and left to sort of interpret what's happening within the story a little more. Um, and then one other thing in the commentary track with Fincher, this this going down on her scene was was addressed. Okay. So um, he oh, was talking about how. Yeah. So he was talking about how. um he was attempting to make to make Nick more likable within the flashbacks. Like he wanted to make sure that he was very likable within the flashbacks. And he sent the dailies to Gillian Flynn and Gillian Flynn replied back and said, like, I don't think you're going to have any problem making. So he was he was specifically wanting Nick to be more likable to a female audience, too. And and so uh, Gillian Flynn replied back and said, like, I don't think you're going to have any problem uh, having, you know, women like Nick at this point after the going down on her scene. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's for me, it felt because I read the novel first, too. There was a feeling it's like, to me, it just felt like disappointing, again, that they'd chosen to include that because it's so patently. I I mean, it was obvious to me, right, that that's why it was Mm -hmm. there, right? And I felt that it was and, and it does stand in contrast to later scenes where he's, you know, they're having sex against the wall, right? Where he's treating her like an object, right? And again, mm-hmm. he's trying to set up this dichotomy, but what gets lost in that, right? Yeah. And then it's, right. it's, it's, and again, it's the film is different, right? But I feel like that's one of the strongest things about the novel mm-hmm. is that he's, you know, he's not a psychopath, right? She is, right? She's a complete yeah. sociopath, but he is also not a great guy, right? <laughs> no. And I think some of the indictment, he's a really crappy guy, mm-hmm. right? He's a crappy husband. He's a crappy, selfish guy. And I think that that, some of that is what a lot of female readers really responded to and then were disappointed with in the film, right? Like, myself included, right? Like, but I want to see more of that contrast. I also think it made, like, it's also because what Amy does in the book is more active in general, but it made, there are times with Ben Affleck 
where he really isn't doing a whole hell of a lot, right? He's moving from place to place and he's having some conversations and he's having sex with his lover, but he's not like having like who I thought was, I can't think of that actress's name, but I thought that was a great casting too. But I, he's left sometimes you don't really know what he's thinking. He feels a little flat sometimes Mm -hmm. where in the novel he's not flat because we're always in his head. And I think that's the difficulty of so much of Nick's story being in his head where so much of Amy's story is her recounting things, her doing things, right? Like there's much more for her to be. Yeah. He's finding the clues and the treasure hunt, but he isn't really doing a whole hell of a lot. Right. So it's not, it's easier to have her seem more active. I think it was easier for her to embody that role than maybe for him to do it. Cause I felt sometimes he's a little flat. Yeah. I mean, and that just shows differences in medium, right? Like, He's an unreliable narrator as well, because he even says, like, I I like to lie by omission. So we're immediately, you know, caught on to the fact that he's probably lying to us. Um, And whereas in the movie, we don't get any of his internal thoughts. I I don't think at all in the movie. So it's all just this sort of performance. And it is often very flat. And I think they're trying to create that mystery instead through the performance. Like, is he flat because he's guilty or is he flat because that's just how he is? We don't know. Um, I also think it's really interesting in that quote you gave, James, that it was it was specifically about I want to make him more likable, which is what we've been touching on all along. So I think there Mm -hmm. was a decision made. This wasn't accidental. Right. Like Uh, just to just to specify, he did. And he did say to women. Yeah. To make to make her more likable to women. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Which, again, is like and these are the choices, right? It's an artistic choice and it's a commercial choice, right? It's like this Mm -hmm. is your audience, too. And who read this book? But what is interesting is it also made the the film more controversial, right? I saw multiple articles about and I remember reading at the time where you took out kind of the soul of this book by making it like this. And I I wish he hadn't made that choice because I really love his filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Right. But I did feel this is not. I don't think this is one of his stronger projects, right? I think that it failed in that sense. I think it's a very effective thriller, but I don't think it's even as effective as, say, for instance, uh, Panic Room, the Panic Room or Panic Room, Mm -hmm. which is also, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but like it's a super effective thriller, beautifully shot again, right? Cleverly made, but feels tighter in many ways. And that's, and I think, in fairness though, I think that's because what he was trying to adapt is so big, right? This is so meaty. And what what do you do, right? I think in some ways it might be just, it, especially like so much of this book is also about the parenting, right? Do we, we become our parents? Which again, reminded me so often when I was rereading it too of The Shining, right? Because that's a large part and that's what Kubrick, like the whole fear, the, what's his name in The Shining, the main character's name. Jack Torrance. Jack, how could I forget that? Yeah, Jack. Like the Jack's fear of being like his dad, right? That mm-hmm. I am this drunk is very much echoed in Gillian Flynn. So I don't know if that was an influence mm-hmm. at all, but this whole thing where he's afraid of being his father, who he despises, right? Similarly to Jack Torrance, right? And like, and I think that's that I probably for time was completely cut, right? And while we get Amy's parents, I, I found myself thinking the second time I watched the film, I found myself wondering if you had not read this book, but this is the case with both of you, did you really understand the amazing Amy part at all, right? Because it's touched on so little that you kind of, it comes very quickly and you're like, okay, you get it that she was, you know, she is amazing Amy, they made money, but I'm not really sure you get the, how like, they say it, but I'm not sure you really get how loathsome that was, right? Like, I can, yeah, I can tell you for sure. The yeah. first time I saw it, I thought of it more as just like world texture. I didn't think of it as like, uh, like I didn't get the 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 parental um, cycle that you're talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, I can't remember specifically, but that also tells me something. Like, it didn't stand out as a notable part of the film when I saw it the first time. Um, yeah. And yeah, in, in rewatching it now after reading the book, I, I definitely noticed that whole era, that whole section was mostly lacking. There is the party scene where she is, you know, Amazing Amy gets married, and we see the pain there, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, in Amy. Um, but yeah, the just how like awful her parents are just doesn't quite come across come across in the movie quite as much. But. Well, and even even that scene is Nick rescuing her, mm-hmm. which is not in the novel, right? Like right. that's not how they got engaged, right? Yeah. And so that's again him being such a great guy, right? Who rescues her from this situation, which he ne- doesn't at all in the book. He's fa- in the in the novel. It comes across too as two people, and I think that's a bigger you know, the bigger scenes about marriage, right? What are we doing in relationships, right? Where you're being your best self. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot about that, which again, is kind of hard to bring to the screen. And if you're not an indie film, right? If you're making this big thriller, and there's also a limit of like, that's the question of genre fiction too, right? Can you make these bigger commentaries as you know, that author friend of mine pointed out, (laughs) doesn't doesn't the fact that she's a total psychopath, completely (laughs) undercut the feminist message, right? Which in some ways, right? Like, there's truth to that, right? Yeah, so I I want to move into talking a little bit about that particular stuff, like women and her stories. Um, I have a quote that I wanted to read. It's from the essay that I referenced in the last episode. I went and found it, and it was the uh, I think it's called "I Was Not a Nice Little Girl." I'll, I'll I'll link it in the show notes by Gillian Flynn. It's a very short essay, and I definitely recommend people read it. But I want to read a part of it um, because I think it'd be interesting to talk about. So we're actually I'm going to read two. First, first is. Um, Libraries are filled with stories on generations of brutal men trapped in a cycle of aggression. I wanted to write about the violence of women. Um, So that sets up the next quote I'm going to read. So she says, we devour the news about Susan Smith or Andrea, Andrea Yates, women who drown their children, but we demand these stories be rendered palatable. We want somber asides on postpartum depression or a story about the man who made her do it. But there's an ignored resonance. I think women like to read about murderous mothers and lost little girls because it's our only mainstream outlet to even begin discussing female violence on a personal level. Female violence is a specific brand of ferocity. It's invasive. A girl fight is all teeth and hair, spit and nails, a much more fearsome thing to watch than two dudes clobbering each other. And the mental violence is positively gory. Women entwine. Some of the most disturbing, sick relationships I've witnessed are between longtime friends, and especially mothers and daughters. Innuendo, backspin, false encouragement, punishing withdrawal, sexual jealousy, garden variety jealousy. Watching women go to work on each other is a horrific bit of pageantry that can stretch on for years. Um, So I thought that was a really, really cool quote, giving insight into her process and this was after she had written sharp objects but i think prior to gone girl at least being released so i think it's really interesting to think of this as like this kind of thing that permeates a lot of her work at least that we've read um what what is how does gone girl fit this sort of mo and and what are your thoughts on that rebecca oh i think it's super interesting and i agree with it though i think her choices are interesting like so what comes to my mind is not Susan Smith or Andrea Yates. And and I want to point out too that Andrea Yates, and maybe she wrote this essay before that case was kind of overturned, right? Because wasn't Andrea Yates eventually released? Because it, <laughs> the, I'm pretty sure she, yeah, because she was basically, and that case is very different because she was under the thumb of her, she drowned her children, right? And she was under the thumb. She, you know, had serious mental illness or she and her husband were very fundy, Christians. And he was the one who kept pushing 
you know, her to have more kids. And she was at, you know, had postpartum psychosis, basically. And very different than Susan Smith, you know, who plotted, made a racist accusation, you know, some black man stole my kids, right? And like, and basically, very, and is still in prison for life, right? So they're very different cases. And I think they're a distinct brand of female aggression, too, because people, the public gets much more angry about mothers, right? This, the, the sanctification of mothers in our society is a very distinct type of female aggression, right? My mother could never hate her own kids. So I think that's an interesting but kind of separate thing to tap into. I think more relevant to Gone Girl would be the female aggression, I think, of the case in Canada that didn't get as much play here because they have different rules about media, but the Ken and Barbie killings of the 1990s, and it was made into Carla, the film, and other things were Carla Homolka. So it was um, a couple killing, right? And he was kind of this, he was a, He's still in prison. She's out. That that says it all, right? Though they both together killed, including her own sister. They were responsible for, you know, she brought her own sister, drugged her so that he could use her sexually. And then um, she died, right? Like vomiting basically from this. But somebody who was a psychopath herself, but fooled people because of this idea that there's still a reluctance to believe that women can be, right? And she's attractive. You know, she that's why they were called the Ken and Barbie, right? That Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, that they were this very attractive couple. She's blonde, she's pretty, right? She he had abused her, right? And it's also that thing about that we have trouble believing that someone who's abused, right? We we have trouble holding these two concepts, right? That you can both be victim and perpetrator at the same time, right? And I think that there's I do think that's interesting, too. And I think, like, who did the studies that resulted in the book, like Queen Bee, right? Like, the idea of female aggression is definitely, I think, really interesting. I, When my kids were approaching, like, um, high school and I was looking at schools, I remember hearing from different people, like, it had been clear to me that my son didn't want to go to an all-boys school because he had a lot of female friends. And I remember I'd always thought in my mind it was very clear, like, oh, you don't want to send your kid to an all boys school because of like the testosterone, right? Who needs nonstop testosterone, right? You need some balancing. But I had always heard and thought like, oh, all female schools, you know, good. I have a daughter as well, right? Like, and, and that's positive. And then I heard from some friends, right, whose kids were at a very well respected all female school. And the, there was so much nastiness there too, right? Girls competing with eating disorders, <laughs> competing like there was just as much aggression and just as much meanness, right? Just as much bullying. It wasn't like the Shangri-La where, you know, women are free now to, you know, the female's free to like explore and be it. And, you know, anyone who's a student of history realizes that Lucretia Borgia, right? <laughs> like there are people like, you know, we, you know, and if, and maybe it's just because I've done so much crime research, I'm well aware of, you know, the capacity for female violence, right? And I also am interested in that in my own work, right? Exploring that and exploring the, how, how that is underplayed, how women are often overlooked you know, meaning uh, mm-hmm. so, so still the numbers, for instance, on female serial killers are still much lower. Right. And and yes, there is more male aggression, more v- females are victims of violence. Right. I don't mean to minimize that at all. Right. Because that's right. some of I think the criticism of this book and books like that. Right. Where females are the aggressor. But that being said, I've often thought that the numbers are lower because they haven't counted them because more people get away with it, right? Like that, the, you know, and I like that Amy's character in this, I think is very interesting that way too, because she's a very organized killer, right? Like she's super organized, mm-hmm. right? And like, that's, it, I just, I, I think it's very interesting and an interesting point. I think there's definitely female violence, female aggression, and 
it it's still is sort of I, I think especially if you're an attractive person and that's what she deals with too, right? If you look like, you know, a thuggish person, male or female, right? I mean, that's what our our minds are always drawn that way. And still with like psychopaths, both male and female, if you look attractive, you're compartmentalized, meaning you live a normal life otherwise they're much less likely to believe. I mean, what is it that people always say in those interviews? Oh, he seemed like such a nice guy, right? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. and maybe he was, except when he was killing people, right? I guess, yeah. There was a particular scene, I think it actually happens in this kind of third section we're about to get to, but um, or I thought this was on display. And that was where Boney is sitting in on the interrogation of Amy once she's returned. And I noticed that Boney, I think, is the only other woman in the room. And there's a bunch of doctors and male police officers. They're all sharing. They're all looking at each other while she's giving this harrowing, you know, lie about what happened. And they're just like 100% bought in. And Boney's like the only one who's like asking pertinent questions and is even willing to believe that she could be lying about this. Um, and I just thought it was interesting there, too, of like, is Gillian Flynn trying to say something about that, about how maybe men can often be particularly blind to this possibility um, or just society in general. Um, we are very like men are often seen as both victim and uh, perpetrator of crimes. Like we always see that like, we're not always, but so often it's like, Oh yeah, they were abused as children and they grew up to be this monster. Um, people don't struggle to hold that in their mind when they think about men, but with women, yeah, it's like once someone's, a victim, it's much more difficult for people to think of them as possibly becoming a villain at some point in the same way. Right. And I think, it, and again, it depends on how they present themselves, right? Like I think of the film Monster based on that real life story. I can't remember the killer's name, yeah. but it's, you know, when things are complex, right? Again, when there's ambiguity and people are both victim and perpetrator, right? I mean, because she was, she was terribly victimized in her life that it played so well by Charlie's Theron, right? Like mm -hmm. that she was mm -hmm. terribly victimized, but then was also, you know, set out like to kill people then, to kill these Johns and to kill people, you know? And I think that it's, yeah, I think it's often that ambiguity, especially with women that they have trouble with. And I think definitely Fincher himself too, whether Gillian Flint, right? Like there's some collaboration there in that scene where they show the man, well, I think we've had enough, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's really, oh, let this poor woman go, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that was very effective, like well done. And I also think that Boney's character is a great character in both the novel and the film, right? I thought the casting was really good there too. And the Gilpin's character kind of gets lost a little bit in both, right? And he's not as important, but Boney, like, is again a re like go like Margot's character right a redeemable character right mm -hmm. like they're both good people in a way and I also liked it that Flynn while she's you know has that sort of small town Midwestern you know oh and calls him like in the novel she's always referring to him as I don't think they included this in the film no they didn't where she calls him oh that's because you're the youngest or something right like mm -hmm. but she's a little affable right a little mm -hmm. but she's not stupid right and and Flynn makes the character smarter right than they are and i think that then they are often depicted and i thought that was good i think she's a well-rounded character like we don't know a lot about her but that's it she's yeah she's willing to kind of see because she's yeah. seen like in both cases she's more cautious to just accept what is presented to you she's an archetype right of, of that detective character you so often get yet she's a woman so she's particularly yeah. suited to s seeing uh amy as being capable of of deception and maybe maybe someone else wouldn't be i think 
Yeah. And I also love just how she approached all, like like the 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 there's that flip turn when they when they officially accuse Nick and he throws the glass on the ground mm-hmm. and I love how the, in the performance what a scene. how she was she was so neutral within within all the scenes anytime she's talking you can't really get a read on which way she's leaning if she actually cuz um uh the the uh, Gilpin keeps being like oh he's guilty like don't worry about it he's guilty and she's like let me do my due diligence in my process she's very neutral about all the conversations they have giving the benefit of the doubt and then when they but the flip is so it's it makes it so satisfying that when they flip and they're like uh they they nailed him on the on the credit card stuff they nailed him on the life insurance and then he just loses it and uh I just, yeah, shout out to that performance. I also think there's an earlier scene where she talks, where Bonnie talks to Gilpin and he says something like, why are you, why can't you just accept this? You know, the things, something like things are what they seem, right? Like it's presented. And she said, really? I've never found that. So, right. Like, oh, and I yeah. thought that was Excellent a great moment. scene. Simplest great. explanation yeah. is usually the right. right one or something. And she, yeah. Which isn't, which is an example too of something that is not in the novel, but was great in the book. Cause we yeah. really don't have scenes from them. We're not in their POV in right. the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, there's another th- another translation detail that I wanted to talk about, which is um, the device of having the flashbacks be the diary and how to how to actually execute that on film. And, you know, of course, it's flashbacks, but there was the the Fincher specifically was talking about in the commentary that um, it was Gillian Flynn's decision to do the the scenes where we're seeing different manicured nails and different pens written on on the diary in order to like translate all of that stuff and to make it clear what was happening and to make it visually interesting. And he thought that that was something that just like when he he felt when he read the book that that would be the thing that would be hardest to adapt. And then when he read the screenplay, he was like, perfect. And I just wanted to ask you guys what you thought about that translation, because I think it does do a lot to give you the hints of everything else there too. the pens. We keep we, the, the pens tend to they're, they're kind of a, a large, you know, detail within the story. Um, they represent a lot as well, too. Yeah. And did he pick? I, I also thought that was good. And in, in the novel, she says that, you know, with my 30 different pens or something that she purposely did it. But it works so much better in film when you see her. I especially remember one scene in which which she's twirling the pen with the little stork, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like a baby shower pen. Right. And I thought that was really well done. Right. So I wonder if like, did he, so she came up with that idea, but who found the pens, right? Kudos to whoever went <laughs> out and sourced department. those pens. Yeah. Art department. Right? Pro- yeah, yeah. Great, great decision with that. Cause I thought it was, yeah. And I thought it was very effective. And again, there's a little bit, it's nebulous in both the novel and the film, even though in the novel we're told that she wrote these over this much time. Right. There are also pieces of it that are true, yeah. right? That there are pieces of the fact that he, like she depicts it as I don't care, but it is true that he blew her off with her friends, right? Like he didn't come to the friends. He doesn't remember things, doesn't remember their anniversary. And like, it, and and some of their early romance was true, right? How they met, how they did that. So she's, you know, and she, they just, in a way, I thought it was a little more effective in the, in the film because in the novel, you're sort of like, I, I remember when I first read the novel thinking, there's something a little off here, but I didn't see the twist coming. I just thought something was wrong, right? Mm. Like there, she seemed a little too blase about what a crap, crappy guy he was, right? And it didn't seem she's clearly smart. And yet she's kind of convinced, trying to convince herself of this and something fell off. So then when it was, but it was a very, still a very satisfying twist. I didn't see it coming. And yeah. then you're satisfied. Oh, no wonder I felt that it was off because it was that. So I think that decision to, how do you do that? I think that's interesting that he thought that was going to be the hardest thing to adapt. To me, I think the harder thing to adapt, which kind of gets lost because it's that is again, this, the complexity of these are two people who are the products of their mm-hmm. parents, right? Which I guess 
he made a decision or the, you know, maybe I'm sure he made the decision and she went along with this Mm -hmm. too. You know, she's like that we're going to cut them. Yeah. I think he specifically meant like visually adapt, like to show, to show on screen. So I don't know if Mm. it was necessarily like a, um, the hardest thing. I don't want to speak for him and say that that was the hardest thing to adapt from the novel. Mm. I I think he did did a good job uh, for all the reasons you just said. I I do the, I, I love the sort of epistolary, uh, direct writing of Amy that we get in the book and then the reveal is so um so profound because she says something to the effect of like did you like that character I created her to do a very specific role and like you you all of a sudden the reveal is that was not the real Amy at all and now we Mm -hmm. get to meet the real Amy um and I, I think that works in the movie but um, it wasn't quite as powerful because we, I hadn't been reading her words for so long and then to have it revealed that I had been reading a lie and reading a crafted persona for a very particular reason, which kind of makes you like a victim in a way and that you've been fooled very deliberately, like much like the public, she is fooling you directly with that writing. Yeah. Which yeah. is, yeah, which is interesting. A little bit... And and does she say that in the film? I don't think so, really, right? Because that's kind of like breaking yeah. the third wall, like uh, the fourth wall, right? Yeah. So we did have a listener question from Paula. Uh, it kind of pertains to some of the stuff we're talking about. Which depiction of Amy do you prefer, book or movie? Specifically, which version do you think is more of a feminist icon? It seemed to me that book Amy was more of a sociopath that was vengeful to anyone who would go against her wishes. In contrast, movie Amy seems less that and more a woman driven to the edge by a shitty husband. So for me, it is easier to empathize with her than book Amy. Which just goes back to what I was saying about, uh, you know, how once you hand this piece of work over, right, that's all in the eyes of the beholder, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever. So I think that's really interesting. I have the opposite reaction, Mm -hmm. but I can see why this person has that reaction, right? I could see an argument for both. I, I have an opposite reaction because I think there's also the scene where uh, where she murders Desi, right? Yeah. Which we do not get in the book. We're told how she yeah. planned it after it's the fact. But we are not shown yeah. that scene. Right, and, her, and she, in the novel, she gives him sleeping pills before she slits his throat, right? Yeah. <laughs> in, in the very famous sequence in the film, which is beautifully filmed, right? And super creepy. Incredible. Like that, incredibly That was the, the like, scene where I was referencing the score, too, where it, it just has these, like, yes. splashy, like, just unsettling sound, and then the blood just drenches over her body. And it was almost like, oof. like borderline with the synthesizer that's being used. It's like borderline, like Blade Runner esque, like the wah yes. wah 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 wah, mm-hmm. like like it's very very so cool. Yeah. And, and what and it's I mean, very it's, modern. It's, it's a in, scene that men get so often in film, but I just to see a woman get a scene like that where she is full on psycho mode, and like mm-hmm. I was thinking of American Psycho, like things like that. Like it. it I don't know. I, I thought it was an incredible scene and definitely one that's going to stick with me. Yes. And again, for like in terms of I, you know, back to the the listener's question. Right. I think that, yeah, I think she's more of an icon in the book for me because because basically that is undercut for me by those very scenes, even though I appreciate that scene. Right. I think it's artistically beautiful. It is really interesting. Right. It's like, yeah, it's, I, I guess I, I, I would have to think about what you just said, Luke, more, right? Whether women get those scenes, right? I think women can often get scenes of being the big bad, right? Especially yeah. in noir and other things, but they're not necessarily 
do they get other scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Like Slitting throats and getting drenched in blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That is another detail you just reminded me of is like, this is almost a, f- if, if we were to think of this like crime thriller as like taking elements from noir, then like does, does Amy fit within like a femme fatale role? I, I don't know because it's not classic noir, right? Mm-hmm. Right. He's not an innocent, but in some ways in the film, he's set up that way a little bit. Right. But he's because he himself is kind of a shit and because they're not, it's not the classic, right. I don't know this person. You know, this isn't, I, I guess it's closer to though. I love, I recently rewatched double indemnity, Amazing. which yeah. it's still uh, such a great film and so holds mm-hmm. up. You know, I watched it when I was really young and I was like, Oh, this, this film holds up after all this time. And Barbara Stanwyck's character is like that. Right. Like, and they are in a relationship. Yeah. Right. And she's so in that sense. Yeah. I think she is kind of the femme fatale and perhaps that's what Fincher ultimately goes with. Right. In the movie, I think, I'm sorry, in the novel, I think it's much more that, this is more about the disintegration of a marriage, right? And a marriage where then one of them turns out to be a psychopath, but it's much more, it's a little less noir. Mm-hmm. Well, in the third part, and, and I'm, I don't want to step on your summary here, but I, this there's another turn that happens, and that is she returns to Nick, and I was dumbfounded that this actually happens. Um, and she comes in confidently, and she says, you know, I, I am able to just trap him, and I can make him be the husband I want. Um, and, uh, she's, she's kind of compared to a spider throughout at times. And, and I felt, I kept thinking of the spider web and, and how he's caught in it now. And she's, she's got all these things to ensure that he can't escape. Um, we get that scene where they strip naked in front of each other, which I thought thematically, uh, really speaks to like, we're, we're now visible to each other for the first time bearing our souls. Um, and that's what she wants. Like she wants ultimate control, but she also wants to be seen and to be able to be herself. Um, and it doesn't matter if he fucking hates her like that's okay as long as i get the thing i wanted which is the husband of my like dreams i guess and that's exactly what you are now you have now become mm-hmm. um we got to talk about this third section because i think that's another big turn right like the, the idea that this would be something anyone would want yet i still am sold on it that this character might want this I do want to jump in real quick with this uh, the little commentary bit that Fincher had about this, the, the return home and how they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're very much acting. And this is the scene that I referenced before with like a certain there's a certain tone and a certain color palette to the scene. And um, we are getting her coming home covered in blood and she falls into his arms in a, in a shot that's mirroring like gone with the wind and like very dramatic. And she's like like completely limp in his arms and then and then we're moving the camera we're moving in with the family we shut the door and then it's just like darkness and it's like Mm -hmm. back to that noir Mm -hmm. and it's like the two different worlds that are being shown on screen and that was one of the most the most juxtaposed uh just the 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 fact that like each location is so different than the other and the way he was playing with that was was what i was referencing there but specifically the the gone with the wind thing is is it was really funny to me because he's he specifically pulled that and was like look at this as the gone with the wind moment (laughs) the romantic like like this is the story that they're spinning like the the romance that will last in the ages and everyone will remember even the lies they tell to each other, but the lies that they show the world, right? Like, and it, it, there's just it's just layers and layers of lies and deceit, and you know what it means to truly know somebody, and how far removed, how many layers removed we are as the public in general, and like what we are shown versus people's you know secret inner lives. I think it's interesting too. I I agree. I, for me, both the film, the novel, and the film sort of fall apart once. Once she comes back home, it's sort of like there's not, you know, once you're past the big reveal of how she planned this all, then things sort of get 
uh, though I love, you know, just saying the thing about with her scene with Desi, right? I also love that you do get that scene in the film, right? I think it's better than the novel in which things you don't really see that because it feels a little more rushed than the novel. Mm -hmm. And like that, oh, you don't really, you're just kind of told about what's going on with him and you don't really feel like you're absorbed in it. So I think that's great. But I think that scene, it's funny. It gets kind of darkly comic, which I think is interesting, but it's not. And I I love the shower scene, right? Because I also feel like it's that sort of thing of, um, it's again the way it's shot and that you're sort of at this angle and all that blood still on her which is totally unrealistic so there's that little part of me of like come on they would have cleaned her up at yeah. some point or there's something uh, yeah. i thought i had the same thought i don't think that's a i don't think that's the case in the book right like i think that's just a movie oh thing. no no well, <laughs> well right right because she does it differently right yeah. yeah it's just but but in a way i loved it because it's also like when she says to him you know take off your clothes like that you're not wearing in a way it's like both of them are fully revealed to each other for the first time right like he's not holding back on his hatred now either mm -hmm. and she is and she is uh fully reveals herself right and in a way there's always that thing like i think they reference it in the novel you know there's often that thing i think she reflects on it that when you have committed a crime you know there's often if you've watched interrogation videos the moment of release where somebody like actually then details their crime is often you can tell it's almost a pleasure right like depending on their level of guilt there's often a thing of to finally be able to talk about it right especially with and cops uh you know police officers will play on this detectives often will yeah you know by egging the person on which you see a little bit in the novel and stuff too come on i bet she was you know, hard to deal with. I bet she was this, right? Mm -hmm. Giving the person the avenue to express the amazing frustration that is behind so many homicides, right? The homicide that they think this is at the beginning, but because it's so much more, right? And she is this incredibly, and it's, and what's so spooky because she is a psychopath is she's basically telling him like, well, you know, this can work, you know, like, that's yeah. what I want you to be. I like you this way so mm -hmm. let's be this way right like that's like which is really spooky you mm -hmm. know and i think so so amazingly shot and because there's a flirtatiousness in both the novel and the film when they're taking the shower right which is so batshit crazy yeah. right like that you're like <laughs> and i love that it's sort of almost even lampshaded by um by tanner bolt uh at the end where he's like you guys are the craziest people i've ever met in my life yeah. Yes. Can we let's speak? I'm so glad you mentioned him because let's speak for a moment about because that character has changed. The race has changed yep. for starters. And I think that's it Tyler is, yeah. Perry, yep. right? Who does an amazing <laughs> does. job in that role. It's a it's a small role. And in some ways, you almost wish you'd seen him more because he is so damn good at that role. And his amusement, which really isn't in the novel at all. It is so much better than the novel depiction, I think, than than it. it in the film, like, because yeah. he's so amused and like, he's so smart and presented as so smart, but so kind of your, you know, and that's, they did take it. Like Flynn took almost that same line. You're, you're the craziest couple. You're one of the craziest couples I've ever met or mm -hmm. something, whatever he says in that great line, right. About how crazy they're, but he's always kind of amused mm -hmm. by it, yeah. which I found very like sort of satisfying. Like, yeah, he does such a great turn with that. Well, yeah. and, and Tanner Bolt is the kind of character that you always hate that person, right? Like this, this, this guy, everybody hates this guy, but we love him in this movie. So it's such a, it's such a refreshing turn to have this, this lawyer be somebody that we like and that we root for. And we feel like is it's good to have him on the job uh, when he's finally hired. Uh, it's really interesting because normally this character is so detestable. 
Yeah, and I thought they did that really well. And again, that's one of the changes that I think, because a lot of that is shortened too, where he's prepped for certain things. And I think it's actually an improvement in the film. It's one of those examples, mm -hmm. like, which I also think they're earlier, and I'm sorry, I'm going back to the other before the very last sequence, but the cabin sequence too, right? Where she's hiding out. I also think that's an improvement in the novel, right? By shortening it, I think it's far creepier than it is in the novel when the people like take her and because it's shorter and because they're, because they kind of approach her, mm -hmm. you know, as much more of the, in the novel, she befriends this woman because she misreads it. Right. And I think it's more effective in the film that she who's never that friendly to people stays consistent, but she's, you know, not that friendly and, and, but still makes these assumptions, right? These people aren't, I'm the smartest person, you know, very psychopath, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the smartest person here, right? And malignant narcissism is the trademark, you know? Yeah. Is the one defining similarity between all psychopaths. That is the defining trademark. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So we vote on that. I think we've done it for a couple of years now. When we come to the end of a project, we vote on which was the better version of the story, all things considered, book or movie. Um, we will start and then we'll let you be the, the final vote. Maybe a tiebreaker. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, James, do you want to start us off? Yes, very quickly. Um, I, I feel like we touched on a lot of reasons why um, the book has more time to develop and really like dig into the characters. But something about this movie is that it, it really does. It shows I, I do agree with Rebecca saying like it's not my favorite Fincher film, but it it's Fincher sort of at the height of his powers making this adapting something that's like, I don't think a lot of filmmakers could could adapt this well. And I think like using leaning into the things that he does well, he's created an environment in this movie and the cast that he's put together. Um, and specifically, Rosamund Pike's performance is just like a revel, like a genuinely one of the one of the greatest performances I've seen in a villain role like this. Um, so I'm going to give it to the uh, to the movie, but I and I can completely understand. I have a feeling that that not everybody else is going to go that way. I'm going to represent the movie in this case. Um, I think Fincher killed it, but I fully understand that like this is Gillian Flynn's voice all the way through, and and uh, you know she's she's the reason this exists. I thought this was going to be an easier decision for me, but um, I really did enjoy this movie quite a bit. Um, there's some there's a power to dramatically representing some of these scenes that just really makes them stand out. I'm thinking of like uh, Go coming to the house to, to, to confront Nick about like, did you actually do this thing? But it's all unsaid. She never actually asks him and he never actually, you know, and he like, he's, he's like, are you asking me this? And she's like, I would never ask you that, but she was. And like, just seeing that all play out um, dramatically is, is so good. And, and there are so many moments like that that I did really love. Um, but ultimately, uh, I am just too much of a fan of Gillian Flynn's prose, uh, the the rich texture she was able to get into in the novel, the the deep understanding of the characters we can get. Um, uh, Rebecca was talking about the parental influence um, and how I think that like the not wanting to be his father shows why Nick is able to be trapped in this way because he doesn't want to be a bad father uh, to this unborn child he has at the end. So it just there's so much there that doesn't quite translate, even though I think, you know, a great effort was made all around um, to where I am going to give it to the book. I think it is the better version. All right. So we need a tiebreaker, Rebecca. Yes, I will be the tiebreaker that. But I also found it to be like you, Luca, like a harder decision than I thought it would be. Right. 
but ultimately I have to give the edge to the book, right? I, I This discussion has actually enriched my appreciation for the film even more. And as I said, I'm like, I'm a huge Fincher fan. So even talking about it, you realize, oh, the choices he was making and why. But in terms of a piece of art, ultimately, right, I give the edge to the book because I think it's just a bit richer, right? And I think that the what makes it such a compelling novel too is that it's really hard in genre fiction often to say something more, right? You can deliver really, I mean, because it's more like a carnival ride, right? And it's hard to often make, and that's the criticism of like so-called literary fiction compared to commercial fiction, popular fiction, right? And I've always felt like, why do you, you know, you can do both, but it's really hard to do both. And this book manages to do both, right? It does give a nuanced, albeit incredibly dark, you know, picture portrait of a married couple, but it does that. And in, in, in the novel, I mean, sorry, in the film, it gives a very um, dark portrait of a woman, right? And I'm not sure that it really gives, and, and I think that it's more single in the film. So I give it slight because of the reasons I already stated earlier, like a slight edge to the novel. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's fair. I'm glad that James represented the movie though. I think it deserves at least one vote. I can't follow you either. I was I was borderline going to take the book. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you, but I wanted to represent the film and it is Fincher. I don't know how often we'll have a chance to, to cover him. I think he's a filmmaker yeah. that, that is stands tall today. I hope we will return to him. I, I heard several adaptations on that list, so I'm sure we'll get back to him. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you online and find uh, find your books? Uh, yeah, you can you can find my books kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. You can like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any bookstore is still standing, right? And um, you can find me at Rebecca at RebeccaDrake.com is the easiest way. And then there are links there to my like, social media um, pages from that. Perfect. I hope they do that. Um, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I I'm so glad you came on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun talking with you both. So if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you use. Um, helps us get the word out, get more listeners. You know, that's the thing we're, we're hoping for. So help us out. Make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And if you wanted to vote on our next uh, quarterly project, make sure to join our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Ink to Film. We also have monthly bonus episodes on there that we put out. Um, we'll be doing another one this month. Last month, we did The Exorcist 2, uh, which was a god-awful movie, but um, we had a lot of fun talking about it. So check that out if that sounds interesting. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So I guess we should go ahead and announce next week we are going to be off. We are going to be doing a From the Vault episode. We haven't decided which one yet yet but uh we'll, we'll be doing that and then we'll be back the week after that with hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um which is a project that i feel like we've been circling for a long time um and i'm definitely really excited to read and get into yeah i cannot wait i love that book that's like uh when we covered good omens like the sort of same tonal things that mm -hmm. were going on with good omens i really loved so i'm excited to get back to some like dry british comedy yeah i mean coming off of this darkness it'll be nice to get some something a little more fun and funny <laughs> you know I, li I like the variety it's it's always good uh so we hope you stick around and join us for that uh and until next time thanks for listening <laughs>